Hello and welcome to Wednesdays with Winnie, where no topic is off topic. From Thomas Aquinas, Aristotle, friendships, and Subway cookies, this is the podcast for those who want to learn a little, laugh a little, and come away with a lot more knowledge, all from a Christian perspective. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. And welcome back to another episode of Wednesdays with Winnie. As I am recording this, I am currently surrounded by boxes and all the stuff I'm packing because tomorrow I am moving to Grand Canyon or like we're getting all of we're driving to Phoenix tomorrow and my official move-in day is Thursday so I'll get to meet my roommate set everything up and I'm so so excited although I'm very nervous and stressed about all the packing like I told you guys I was not stressed earlier now I am like (laughs) very stressed about it but it's it's going good we're gonna make it there and it'll all work out. I will do, though, like, once I'm all settled in, an update on what I wish I had done. And I know before I said that, like, there wasn't much I wished I had I had done, but now there is. So we will see just as I go along the process what happens. So it'll probably be good for the sound because everything will be muffled. <laughs> but it's just, it's a lot. It's very overwhelming. I like to keep mostly clean. And my room is very far from that at the moment. But this week, we are doing a more serious and tougher topic to handle. And while that is one of the goals for my podcast, and I have been trying to do that more, especially with the pornography episode, I just really want to be able to bring you guys episodes that are impactful and meaningful and cover controversial topics in a considerate and informative way. And so this topic that we're talking about today, the legalization of abortion, it is a very big and broad topic. Abortion as a whole is what I hope to cover in the next three episodes. And so I decided to break it up into three episodes because there is so much to the abortion debate and what surrounds it. And so I thought that I would break it down into three pieces, the first being a history of the legalization of abortion in America. And then the second episode, I will do um, a history of just, I think, abortion in America and abortion clinics. And then the last one will be a much more philosophical episode, really going back to where life starts and I want to make sure that I exp- I give um, points both to the Christian and non-Christian viewers of this podcast because I know that not everyone that listens to this is Christian. And I think that a big mistake a lot of Christians make when discussing abortion is they don't acknowledge that not everyone takes the Bible as a primary source of authority. So in doing these podcasts, I really want to examine outside documents. The Bible is very important, but it's not what we'll be relying on for these podcasts, especially this first one. I looked into court trans, so the transcripts of court cases that were and where decisions regarding abortion were made, I read the entire transcript of Roe v. Wade, and I think that reading that gave me a much deeper knowledge 
of how abortion was legalized and the arguments used and put in to legalize it, which I think it's a very important thing if you have the opportunity to read it. But for those of you that don't, I'm here. I dissected it for you. I spent a very lot of time going through it, um, thinking about it, writing it down, kind of bringing it all to one place, trying to explain it as easily and simply as possible. And for this episode, it's not going to be heavy on my thoughts and opinions. There will be the last episode. I'll be relying a lot more on those, but this episode is mostly just about the legal cases that were used to form America's current abortion laws. And as of right now, abortion is, because of Roe v. Wade, abortion is legal in all 51 states of America. And there are different restrictions depending on which state you're from. Some allow abortion um, all through trimesters of the pregnancy. Some allow it for only the first or only the second, or they have a certain laws and restrictions in place, but it is, as of right now, illegal in America. And I will be upfront with you guys. I do not support abortion. I could not morally do that. So I'm not completely unbiased in this. I just want to want to be honest. I think it's very hard for anyone to be unbiased completely and but for this episode I tried to stay as objective as possible in stating the facts of these trials. So without further ado, and I hope that I am addressing this as sensitively as such a topic deserves, but without further ado, I would like to start by discussing Roe v. Wade and what the case was kind of based on and what decision it led to from the Supreme Court. So in Roe v. Wade, the district attorney was Henry Wade and the attorney um, defending Jane Roe, who was the plaintiff of the case, was Sarah Weddington. And Sarah Weddington argued the case and built her case upon the idea that Texas abortion laws were unconstitutional for two reasons. Number one, being that they were vague, and number two, being that they interfered with the woman's Ninth Amendment rights. And in this case, the plaintiff, Jane Roe, was a pregnant woman who... Um, Sarah Weddington was trying to argue it should be legal under Texas law to for her to get an abortion because it currently wasn't during the the time of the case. And Texas's abortion laws stated that a woman could only terminate a pregnancy if her life was in danger and the pregnancy was life-threatening to the woman. That was the only way a woman could obtain an abortion. And Sarah Weddington based her case off of three main, am- main amendments, the Fifth Amendment and the Ninth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment. And I thought that I would read each of those amendments for you and then try my best to explain them in more simpler terms so that you can really understand what what the case was based upon. So the Fifth Amendment, as from the Constitution, I quote directly, no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless a, on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia when in actual service, in time of war or public danger, nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property, 
without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. And so that amendment is, it was a little hard for me to understand. I spent a while picking it apart. But in more simpler terms, it means, and in this argument in particular regarding abortion, she was citing that um, not having to testify against herself if accused of a crime was a part of the case because at that time, abortion was illegal in Texas and people were being... um, forced not to pro- not to like testify against themselves but the court had the texas courts were having some people like admit to their abortions and sarah weddington thought that this went against the fifth amendment the th- next is the ninth amendment which and i quote the enumeration in the constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people and this basically means that even if specific rights are not mentioned in the Constitution, people still have them. And this is a touchier topic because most likely abortion wasn't something that was incredibly prevalent during the founding fathers when they were writing the constitution so she was arguing that because it wasn't prevalent it doesn't mean that it's against the constitution because it wasn't a problem that was relevant when the constitution was authored so the 14th amendment i'm not going to read it because it has multiple clauses and is very very long but the 14th amendment basically in regards to the abortion argument states the due process clause of the 14th amendment to the u.s constitution provides a fundamental right to privacy that protects a pregnant woman's liberty to choose whether or not to have an abortion so when quoting the 14th amendment most abortion activists use um the right to privacy clause which is a rather vague clause in itself which also confuses me as to why okay yeah trying not to be trying to be objective but that is the fifth ninth and 14th amendments in more basic terms so it is also important to note that before the case made it to the supreme court the texas law or like another case came before them and it was ruled unconstitutional in a declaratory statement of three judges and this um this was in a specific case and it was not for the entire state of texas although sarah weddington cites this a lot in her argument but at the time of roe v wade when it was at the supreme court texas had not changed its abortion laws so it was still only if the mother's life was in danger could she get an abortion so um oh i need to take take a breath i'm trying to get through this quickly as possible but still do a good job but at the time when this law happened or when this was a problem um texas doctors that were performing abortions were being prosecuted by the courts because they were illegal to perform so sarah weddington also cites this and she cited that one of the reasons that texas should be allowed to overturn the law was because women were traveling to other states if they were rich enough or they would just resort to illegal abortions so why not make it accessible in texas anyway if it was already being done 
And she was, she cited a study that said um, in the year of 1971, 1,600 Texas women went to New York for abortions. So people in Texas were going to other states to procure abortions since it wasn't legal then. And after that, she also argued and said, There are still women who, for various reasons, do not wish to continue their pregnancy, whether because of their family situations or because of their financial situations, educations, or working situations. And she described these situations as grounds, good grounds, for women to obtain an abortion. Which, for me personally, I do not believe that that is ethical, but that is what the court, or what she stated as one of her reasons. And she also, in this case, cited Griswold versus Connecticut, which is a key case because it was a case in which the Supreme Court determined that it was unlawful of the state to determine whether or not married people could use birth control, and the state came to the um, decree that it violated the right to marital privacy. So she used this case to say that abortion... Um, like the use of contraception, violated the privacy of the couple, which for a couple of reasons doesn't make sense. Number one, a lot of women seeking abortions were not married. Some were, but the vast majority of them weren't, and that was in the right to marital privacy. So the case was not exactly linked directly with abortion. It was a very different case, so it wasn't necessarily something that could be quoted. And also, um, contraception is a much different thing than dealing with an actual human. And we'll get to more on that in the third episode. But, and my personal thoughts on this, um, Griswold versus Connecticut is not a comparable case to the argument being made in Roe v. Wade. And then the next quote, she's, I, I have a couple direct quotes from her. Another thing she said in the transcript of the case, no decision of the Supreme Court has ever permitted anyone's constitutional right to be directly abridged to protect a state interest which is subject to such a variety of personal judgments. And this quote basically means that she's saying the Supreme Court has never... Um, like trampled someone's constitutional rights um, to protect a state's interest. And I think this, number one, disacknowledges the constitutional rights of humans. And number two, there are many instances in which the federal government has allowed the state to pursue the state's interests, but not over fundamental rights. So I think that there's an important distinction to be made there as well. But that is um, the Supreme Court. Um, she had to base her main argument in that case of the Supreme Court off of the fat or off of the assumption that a fetus had no constitutional rights. And that is the only way that the case could have gone through. And that is exactly what Sarah Whittington argued. So all of these pre-points leading up to her argument and her main argument was that the fetus has no constitutional rights. Therefore, a mother has the right to abortion. 
based on these other premises. So, she cites two other Supreme Court cases, number one being Bryn versus New York, and the other being the Magee Women's Hospital, and these are both court cases in which judges decided that fetuses did not hold constitutional rights, and that is a critical, critical point to the abortion argument. For abortion to work and for it to be legal and for people to not be utter and complete psychopaths and sociopaths and murderers, abortion... Um, relies on the fact or the premise not the fact that a fetus is not a living being and therefore has no rights and that concluded her case for um, Roe v. Wade and the judges judging the case were um, the chief justice was Warren E. Berger and it was a 7-2 to two vote with Warren E. Berger Harry Blackman William O. Douglas, William J. Brennan Jr., Potter Stewart, Thurgood Marshall, Lewis F. Powell Jr. deciding in the favor of Sarah Weddington and Jane Roe. And the dissent were Byron White and William Rehnquist, who did not think that the state should legalize abortion, or that the Supreme Court should legalize abortion. So, after... Now that I've kind of explained the trial, the process, I would just like to say Sarah Weddington did a fantastic, fantastic job of setting up her argument very, very well. She really did think of a lot of objections and was able to answer very um, cohesively and well all the objections, almost all of the objections that were brought against her case. So she really prepared for this case and... She did her homework, I will say. (laughs) Reading the case allowed me to definitely see how prepared she was in making her arguments and how unprepared Henry Wade was in making her his. The difference between the two was very starch, (laughs) and her arguments were definitely very forceful and well thought out, and it was easy to tell in reading them. But the plaintiff who she was defending, Norma McCorvey, Jane Rowe is um, not her real name, obviously, but Norma McCorvey was a little backstory on her. She was the plaintiff of the trial, and in the case, for the case to even come to the Supreme Court and for Sarah Weddington to have picked it up, Norma McCorvey wanted an abortion, and at the time, she was not married, but she tried because abortion was illegal in the state of Texas. She went to the police saying she had been raped, which she later said was a falsified claim and that she had not, in fact, been raped. But she was just saying that to try to procure an abortion. But she was not a, the most um, trustworthy of plaintiffs. And even throughout her case, Sarah Weddington said she often couldn't tell whether Norma McCorvey was long, like telling the truth or not. And she never attended any of the trials that took place over the three years that it took Roe v. Wade to make it to the Supreme Court. So within those three years, she obviously did not get an abortion. But later in her life, I thought it was rather interesting to note, um, Norma McCorvey became a Protestant and then converted to Catholicism and stated that her involvement in Roe v. Wade was the biggest mistake of her life. So um, that is where she currently stands on abortion. Um, But going back to Sarah Weddington and Henry Wade, 
a little bit about Henry Wade and his expertise in abortion. He had not very much. He was a Democrat, and he was the district attorney for the state of Texas. So he was put onto the case not because he it was a case that interested him or that he wanted necessarily to take up, but because they needed someone to do it. And in describing Wade's office, this was someone who visited it. Wade's office, like most district attorney's offices across the country, had instigated virtually no abortion prosecutions. District attorneys typically prosecute an abortionist only when a complaint was filed by a police department, and that only happened when a woman showed up, usually at a large metropolitan hospital with a badly bungled abortion and was willing to talk to the police about what had happened to her. So he had little to no experience regarding abortion and speaking about it. And I think that is one of the reasons his unpreparedness came across so starkly in contrast to Sarah Weddington's. Sarah Weddington wanted to take up the case and is still to the and was a very staunch advocator of women's rights. So, um, next important case, this is definitely, Roe v. Wade was the one that I think is probably the most important in informing America's abortion laws today. So I spent the most time on that one. But the next one is Doe v. Bolton, which happened in 1973, and in Doe v. Bolton, the court ruled that a woman's right to an abortion could not be limited by the state if abortion was sought for reasons of maternal health. And this was actually a a very detrimental thing um, to people that are not advocates of abortion because maternal health, the state or the Supreme Court defined as physical, emotional, psychological, familial, and the woman's age relevant to the well-being of the patient and the health exception expanded to the right of abortion for any reason through all three trimesters of pregnancy so someone just says i have anxiety that's grounds to get an abortion and it's no longer if the woman's life is in danger she's been raped or there's incest it is um it can be for the smallest and any psychological emotional like they said any factor that a woman can seek an abortion and the next case is Maher versus Roe, and that was 1979. And the court held that the state has the authority to make a value judgment favoring childbirth over abortion and to implement that judgment by the allocation of public funds. And this is actually an important case because it gives states the choice to kind of advocate more for abortion or more for um, maternal, like, putting more funds towards mothers and children so the state gets to choose where their funds go and the government or the federal government cannot force them where to put these funds which i think is a very good case next one is and i'm going to butcher this name but kolati versus franklin and this was also 1979 and this was where the court rejected a Pennsylvania statute that would have required doctors to protect the life of a fetus who may be viable birth both during and after an abortion. So it gave it did not pass a statute that said that doctors have to protect um, a fetus who could still be alive after a botched abortion. It said that that was not necessary. 
and it ruled that the doctor performing the abortion and not a court or legislature was um, competent enough to make a determination of viability. And so it didn't hold doctors to any moral obligations. So if a baby, um, say, an abortion was performed uh, very late and the baby could have survived, but the doctor um, just decided that that was not what he wanted to do or allow, then there's no legal repercussions for that. The next is Harris versus McRae, which was a case in 1980, and the court upheld the federal Hyde Amendment, which is an amendment that restricted funding to abortions sought because the mother's life was endangered, and only because of that, not for other reasons. And it stated that there was no right, constitutional right for a woman to have an abortion at a public expense. And since 1994, the Hyde Amendment has permitted funding for abortions where pregnancy was the result of rape or incest as well. So it only permits um, public funding for abortions where the mother's life is is endangered or as the result of rape or incest instead of just any... um, any other reason. So it's saying that there's no constitutional right for public funding to be allocated unless there are those um, exceptions. And the next case is H.L. versus Matheson, which was a court case in 1981, where the court upheld a statute requiring the doctor performing the abortion to notify one parent of a minor girl who is living at home with her parents as long as a judicial bypass is available. And this is actually a, a good ruling because it requires states to notify um, parents if a girl is getting an abortion. And a judicial bypass, for anyone wondering, is just where even if a state has the abortion laws say no abortions past six weeks, or if you're under 14, you can't get an abortion, a judicial bypass is where someone can appear before a judge and ask um, in a specific case-by-case basis for an abortion, and the judge can either grant or deny the request. So, next case is Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey, which was in 1992, and the court held states could require parental consent for a minor's abortion. Um... As long as as there was a waiting period between seeking and obtaining abortion and requiring detailed consent, including the medical information about the abortion, but the state could not require a signed statement from the woman that she had given notice to her husband before the procedure. So it's, once again, kind of similar to the last one. It is upholding um, that a woman or that a girl must obtain consent from her parents to get an abortion, but it also is saying that a woman does not have to have the consent of her partner or husband in getting an abortion. So husbands um, or boyfriends or whatever do not need to give consent for a woman to receive an abortion. Next is Denberg versus Carhartt, and this was a case in 2000 where the court ruled unconstitutional Nebraska's ban on partial birth abortion. So the court, this is a good thing, the court cited two grounds for striking down, oh, wait, never mind, I, this is, I mixed this one up, but um, the court recited two grounds for striking down Nebraska's statute, um, 
by citing one the absence of an exception to the ban of the health of the mother and because the court found the description of the partial abortion procedure to be vague and potentially including other mid and late term abortion procedures so basically nebraska was trying to not allow partial this is not a good law but nebraska was trying to not allow partial birth abortion so aborting a baby as it is being born they were trying to they they have a ban on that and the supreme court declared that ban unconstitutional so the supreme court was allowing partial birth abortions and those were the two reasons why they were allowing them and that was the most major most recent major court case as of late regarding abortion there have been others but for the most part um all those court cases defined the laws and statutes of what abortion now looks like in america and like i said before abortions are currently legal everywhere but there are state restrictions that the states have the opportunity to put into place so with all of that being said that concludes this episode and kind of the history of the legalization of abortion certainly not the history of a whole of abortion but that concludes the legalizational history of it and uh, (laughs) this was definitely a very heavy episode nothing light really in this episode at all so i'm hoping next week it won't be light but it will be a little bit different I what I really don't want to do is for these like it's more serious episodes I don't want to be like abortion and cookies uh, so I think I'm going to keep the next three episodes the title will just be abortion and the different aspects so with that being said I'm going to close in a bible verse which is Genesis 1 so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And that's it. I'm not really going to reflect on that. I'll just leave it there. And I hope that this episode was informative for you, if nothing else. And I will see you next Wednesday. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wednesdays with Winnie. I would really appreciate it if you could leave a review on whatever platform you listen to the podcast on just to let me know how I'm doing. Anyways, God bless and see you next Wednesday.